Like, who would we we'd get, like, Frank Catalanato, like, playing softball at the Skydome? I wouldn't mind watching that, personally. Yeah, Jose Cruz Jr. in center field? Yeah. But your team would have yeah, to I have, mean, like, a certain amount of history. Like, well, you, like, that's the problem. Like, <laughs> that's the problem with the Jays. <laughs> well, the Jays, I think, have been around long enough now that you could have an old-timers game, but... Um, I don't know if no, you, you could like you could like, but like, like not... could do you think like the Rays and the Diamondbacks have been around long enough? I mean, it has been almost twenty five years. The Diamond, the Diamondback has the Diamondbacks have like two thousand and one. So as long as you get like three main guys from that team, like if you get like Matt Williams and uh, who was the steroids guy, um, Gonzalez. Yeah, the guy and, who got like, the hit. Yeah, the guy who got the hit just like muscled that one out into center field yeah, somehow. Just popped her out. That's there. like that's just like that's just pure baseball where it's just they right there was one out they're playing in and like you have to play in in that situation. Yeah. But if they played a double play depth like that's, that's an a out. line out. That, yeah, that's an out right? all day. But yeah, they they kind they talk about that Maybe in the a, uh Ken Burns baseball documentary. I forget who the quote is actually from, but they talk. He, he talks about how baseball is that perfect game where you can see like your greatest glory and your greatest demise happening before your eyes. And that was a perfect example. Cause you know, like you say, they moved the infielders in and then it's just a slow pop that's, you know, muscled just enough to get over their heads and Yankees fans just yeah, see that happening like, and the man running in from third and game well, seven's fuck, over first and of all, fuck the Yankees fans. They, Oh, at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was like, cheering like, against the Yankees yeah, for yeah, sure. No, I but all diving back. That was yeah. also 2001 though. So like yeah. the whole world was kind of feeling on the Yankees I side. Wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't either, but you know, no, no. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. <laughs> I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And uh, we're bringing you some baseball, uh, some baseball history, and uh, our opinions on old-timer games uh, <laughs> and fate, and uh, the fact that even a national tragedy couldn't bring us to love the Yankees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're unfamiliar, we are a uh, history podcast, a baseball history podcast. Bi-weekly. Uh, that uh, we take turns. I knew you were going to jump in at some point there. <laughs> yes, where we take turns telling stories about baseball's past. Uh, so, Edzy, you got a story for us today. Yeah. Re- the, I'm super excited. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be one of the shorter ones. Originally, we planned to record last night, but... Uh, because my job is weather-related, and sometimes the weather is a surprise when the wind gets up to 80-kilometer-an-hour winds and everything turns to black ice, you have to tell your friend who's waiting at your doorstep, essentially, to turn around and drive all the way back to Toronto. So, 
uh, well, thanks for coming anyways, but, uh, yeah, well, uh, you know what? I'm super excited for my story. Well, we'll have that to you in two weeks, uh, but we're recording this last second. So we're going with the shorter of the two, uh, but I'm still stoked for this. So, so it t- does it tie in to like a previous episode? Yeah, it, uh, is sort of an addition to your Charles Finley story and sort of adds to the uh, legend of how insane Charles Finley is. But uh, also just, it's kind of a nice coincidence in pop culture. And that's all I'm really going to say, because I'll probably give too much of it away if I talk too much longer. Yeah. All right. Well, follow us on social media at doing baseball. Uh, and on Instagram, Edza, you've been amazing with the Instagram. Check that shit out. Almost daily baseball history. Sometimes that, daily baseball history. Yeah, uh, that's at doing right, dot baseball. Do doing dot baseball, sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. I guess I'll get started here. So like I was mentioning before, once again, I changed the story up at the last minute because, uh, well, A, because of the weather bullshit, but... Uh, on the other hand, just for my other project, I needed some more research material that was short in the book I ordered. So I'm waiting for another copy with more depth. And uh, so, like I was saying before, it's uh, an addendum to your story on the insane life of Charles Finley. But uh, so we'll begin on October 2nd, 2019. Okay. So the wild card game. Recently. Yeah. Very recently. Yeah, which is the okay. that was the wild card game in Oakland. Uh-huh. In Oakland. The Tampa Bay Rays are in the Bay Area to take on the A's at the Coliseum. Oakland entered the game with a 97 and 65 record while Tampa Bay was 96 and 66. Oakland won the season series 4 to 3. The Rays took an early lead in the first inning, courtesy of a leadoff home run by Yandy Diaz off Oakland starter Sean Manaya. Manaya gave up a single to Matt Duffy to begin the second inning, and Aviciel Garcia promptly homered to extend Tampa Bay's lead to 3-0. When Manaya gave up another home run to Diaz in the third inning, he was lifted in favor of Yusmero Pettit, and that would have been enough right there. The Athletics scored their lone run in the game in the bottom of the third when a throwing error by Mike Brasso allowed Marcus Simeon to reach third base and Ramon Laureano drove him in with a sack fly. But Tommy Pham's fifth-inning home run off Pettit again gave the Rays a four-run lead. Charlie Morton was relieved after the bottom of the fifth by Diego Castillo, Nick Anderson, and Emilio Pagan, who combined for four scoreless innings to seal the victory for Tampa Bay. For Oakland, it was their 30th straight year without a title. But we're not. It was. Yeah. Was a. Go on. That was a. That was a rough one. I remember cheering for the A's in that game. We're always cheering for the A's. Well, we're always cheering for the A's, but I just remember that wild card game. That well, I mean, obviously, it wasn't that long ago. So. The Rays have like pretty much been heartbroken in every wild card game they've played in. But uh, Pretty much. but anyway, we're not we're not here, Sean, to talk about the wild card game. No, we're here to talk about the first pitch, the ceremonial oh first pitch, 
thrown out by none other than Stanley Burl. Okay. Have you heard of Stanley Burl? Yeah, you have. Not at all. Yes, you have. Stanley Kirk okay. Burl was born. It sounds familiar. Was born on March 30th, 1962, in Oakland, California. His father was a professional poker player and gambling casino manager at the Oaks Card Club's card room, as well as a warehouse supervisor. Stanley grew up poor Wait, with. Say that. Say that again. He was a gambling casino manager at Oaks Oaks Card Club's card room, as well as a warehouse supervisor. Okay. Right. So wait, you're a warehouse supervisor and a gambling manager? Yep. Or a casino manager? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's Stanley Burrell's father. So Stanley grew up poor with his mother, who made ends meet working as a secretary and eight siblings in a small apartment in East Oakland. He recalled that six children were crammed into a three-bedroom housing project apartment. I was going to say, that didn't sound comfortable. No, tight quarters, for for sure, no doubt. That's Uh, why bunk beds were invented, people. Yes. Growing up, Burrell was just a kid who used to hang out at the Oakland Coliseum parking lot, waiting for a spare ticket to watch the day's game, And the stories are that maybe he was selling baseballs outside the Coliseum or he was scalping tickets or he was doing a dance routine to James Brown or he was beatboxing. So he's hanging out outside the stadium doing any of these things. Any, but not all of them. Well, no. But maybe uh, like could he have been beatboxing, selling baseballs, like doing well, a beatbox? Well, well prob- probably not all at one time, but at, at one time or another, I, I'm assuming the stories are that he was doing any one of those things. Uh, as a young boy, he would sneak around the A's clubhouse too, where his two brothers were bat boys. So I guess eventually his brothers okay, got. I was gonna say. His brothers must have, I assume they got jobs there and then he was able to go around the clubhouse because, like, you know, why wouldn't he just do that at first? But anyway. um, (laughs) Just wanders inside. Ah, I know him. Yep. So one day, Charles O. Finley saw young Stanley doing the splits and hired him as a clubhouse assistant and Bat Boy as a result of his energy and flair. That's a fantastic way to get a job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, this should come as no surprise. You can do the splits. You're the clubhouse assistant. <laughs> uh, this, should, this should come as no surprise to those who listened to our episode on Finley or for anyone who knows anything about Finley at all, for that matter. Uh, so you might ask, what would a child do for a job inside the clubhouse of a major league baseball organization? Well... He did a lot of different things. He started working for the team when he was only nine years old. It's got to be some kind of labor law. Wait, so he's doing the... Yeah, but no, he's just like, Charles Finley's like, there's a nine-year-old doing the splits. Get him a job. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I'm saying, yes. Uh, This was 1971. Oh my God, this guy's lived less than a decade. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's 71. Yeah, 71. So as we know, it's the early. The delay is killing them. Yeah. It's early in the Oakland A's history because as we know, they yeah, moved. Like- as we know, they, from previous episodes, from the Finley one, the Toronto Giants, they'd only come to town in 1968. And so. Stanley started as a bad boy, like I said. Charlie took a liking to him, and he started doing odds and ends. He was sort of an all-purpose gopher. As the years went on, Charlie Finley started spending more time in Chicago, where his insurance business was based. And so, Burl would go up to the owner's box at the Coliseum, and during games, he would call up Charlie Finley long distance and give him the play-by-play. That's amazing. Yeah. So you go from like nine year old doing the splits outside to like talking to Charles Finley. It was a ball. No, it, it looked like a strike, but I mean, yeah, but he called it a ball. Yeah, he is a son of a bitch. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, Charlie Finley liked it so much that one game he informed the A's longtime announcer, Monty Moore, that he wanted the kid to go on air on the actual A's radio station and do the play by play. So once again, he's like, he's good at telling me stuff over the phone. So naturally, he'll just be a great broadcaster. Yeah, Charles Finley is insane. How uh, old is this kid? He, I think he's still nine. He's still very young anyway. This, the years haven't advanced since we initially got the job. Like he went from... He went from Bat boy or like clubhouse attendant to bat boy to on the phone with the guy to now being it's not a lot of years anyway you know like he's he's i'm gonna guess he's at the oldest like 12 okay so amazing so stanley went on the air and he was doing the play-by-play and radio executives forced him off after only half an inning so charlie was (laughs) wrong about that (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what happened. He was great with over the phone. Over the phone, I was seeing the game. <laughs> this kid was late in my mind. Uh, before he was old enough to buy a pack of cigarettes, Stanley Burrell was jokingly awarded the title of executive vice president and paid seven fifty per game for his troubles. Charlie's seven dollars and fifty. Yeah, so Charlie's hiring children as his executives. Uh, Burl recalled that Charlie said, "Quote: I'm getting you a new hat. I don't want you to have a hat that says A's on it. I'm getting you a hat that says XVP, that says Executive Vice President. You're running the joint around here." <laughs> but eventually, every time I went down to the clubhouse, you know, Raleigh would yell out, "Oh." Everybody be quiet. Here comes Pipeline. Pipeline? Yeah, Pipeline. I'll tell you why. Early in his days as EV... Why, why do they call him? I'll tell you. All right. Early in his days as executive vice president, the players were pretty amused by the energetic kid running around the clubhouse and in the front offices. But as Finley spent more time away from the team, and as Burl spent more time reporting the goings-on back to Finley... The relationship soured a little, and Stanley gained the new nickname. Ron Bergman at the time, an Oakland Tribune writer covering the A's, recalled that he was an informant in the clubhouse, 
an informant for Charlie, and he got the nickname Pipeline. So, Charlie basically just, like, hired this kid to go around the clubhouse and then tell him shit. Pretty much. He was like, I got you a new hat. I got you a new hat. Just, what, what, was, Raleigh, what was Raleigh saying after I left the other day? <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> well, much. he called you, he called you, uh, uh, big bald. Chuck, Chuck the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but as we know, Finley would never get rid of a trusted employee just because of a negative opinion on the part of his players. If anything, it would endear the young Stanley Burwell to the crazed athletics owner. Stanley reveled in it too. Joe Gergen in the LA Times writes that he spotted Burrell in 1978 when the team was in dire straits and attendances were plumbing, plummeting. On this particular day... The debut performance of top draft choice Mike Morgan, one week after his high school graduation, Burrell was on duty outside the club offices. He was 16 and semi-conspicuous. On the crown of his green and gold baseball cap in block letters was the title VP. And he made sure that everyone knew it, even if they couldn't read the cap. Quote, Make way for the VP, he commanded the elevator operator. The operator yawned. I'll have your job, Burl said. You can have it, the operator replied. <laughs> so he's just walking around being a dick. Yeah, <laughs> he's just exactly. been empowered to be a dick. <laughs> yeah. After gra- my hat. Yeah. It says VP, not A's. You guys are just A's. After graduating, building this team together by getting me a different hat. Everybody's position's got a new hat on it. <laughs> After Fielder, you had CF. Imagine. After graduating from high school, Stanley attended a local college in Oakland. He wanted to graduate with a degree in communications and become a professional baseball player. He even tried out for the San Francisco Giants. But neither worked out. He flirted with the idea of selling drugs in his neighborhood, but decided instead to join the Navy. Well, you know what? He had two options there. I think the other one would have been the most interesting. But <laughs> for this probably, story, yeah. <laughs> For this story, at least, I guess he chose the Navy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. then, tu- then he turned to the Bible and started his own religious rap group called the Holy Ghost Boys. I did not see that one coming. <laughs> Despite the brilliant name, that didn't quite so work like, out like, either. Drugs. <laughs> like, drugs. Navy, you know what? The Navy's going all right, but I really, really feel like I should make a religious rap group. Um, there's no way I could fail. Well, it did. Uh, <laughs> he stayed in touch with a couple of A's outfielders, though, and once he got back from the Navy, after a few years, Burrell decided he wanted to get his music career going again. And so, he got in touch with these outfielders, who were Dwayne Murphy and Mike Davis, and convinced them to give him a loan to start his first label label, and put out his first album. So he's getting financed by a couple outfielders. He mustn't have been dicks to them. Which is surprising. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you got friends in the clubhouse, I mean... You, you can get hooked up. Like, it's just like having, like, a bunch of millionaire friends. If you had a bunch of millionaire friends or, like, highly paid friends and stuff like that, it's just like, 
yeah, people just have fuck you money and you can be like, hey, you want to help me start a music label? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm dumb and have money. (laughs) Uh, He actually followed Mike Davis to spring training and there's a story about him pushing back a table and launching into a dance routine for Davis and his wife. And Davis wrote him a check right then and there. (laughs) Which would just be a ridiculous scene. (laughs) He assembled a crew of dancers and DJs to back him up, worked relentlessly to push his stuff to a wider audience, and eventually signed with Capitol Records. Um, That's uh, all right. Yeah, so he's, he's having some success. But he would need a catchy name. A name to stand the test of time. And he already had it. He had acquired it from spending all that time around the A's clubhouse. Burrell had been around enough that he'd become a familiar face, and not just with the A's. One day, as longtime A's clubhouse manager Steve Vucinich tells it, Burrell caught the eye of a visiting player. The guy had played for the Braves, had played alongside Hank Aaron, and thought this kid bore a striking resemblance to Hammer and Hank. Reggie Jackson also claimed coining the nickname, but and thus Burrell became known eventually around the world as MC Hammer. No. Yep. That is uh, that is something. That's something, all right. That's the story That's- of how MC Hammer was the. A's bat boy. Yeah, that's MC. Like, I didn't, you know, I feel like I probably learned that off our Instagram. That was on our Instagram, wasn't it? I don't think so. No, I don't think I've put that on there. But I was, I was surprised. That's, I trying to kind of tried to keep it mysterious until the end because I thought because you had done the Finley story, you might have stumbled across that. No, Charles Finley's so fucking crazy that, like, I did, you know, an hour and five minute episode on him, and I've missed things. I've found out things about him, not constantly, <laughs> well, yeah. but there was, like, the bus burning or whatever that he did that I totally missed in that one, and I missed this. Like, I, him giving a nine-year-old a job for doing the splits and then giving him a hat, and <laughs> MC Hammer actually, like, called half an inning of an ace game. When he was like 12. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so sick. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. So yeah, MC Hammer like... has lived an interesting life. He went from being a uh, A's clubhouse assistant to executive VP to a uh, uh, rap star to bankrupt dude to butt of a joke on The Simpsons. <laughs> yep. And apparently I uh, note that I didn't want to go into too much depth. I didn't want to get this too long. But apparently that relationship with uh, Dwayne Murphy and Mike Davis, the two outfielders, uh, I think they like never got paid back or something like that. Or it took them a long time to get paid back or something. And there was a settlement out of court. And yeah, it was kind of an ugly uh, scene there. So. Uh, oh my god i'm on his i'm on his wikipedia raid now stanley kirk burrell mc goddamn hammer fucking also known as mc hammer 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 time king hammer kirk burrell k burrell hammer man (laughs) (laughs) hammer man (laughs) 
Hammer Man's the Hammer Man is the best. Oh my god. Oh, so good. But that yeah. is absolutely what that was a great one because I had no idea where we were, we were going with it. Uh, and yeah, I love those stories that just like go around like the peripheries of baseball. And uh, I I will tell you that uh, yeah, my story that we'll have in two weeks is is uh, I don't want to say similar, but but you know around the edges of the game like this one was. So super stoked for that. Yeah, you've been uh, you've been getting me hyped yeah, up for that one for the last few days, so I'm looking forward to that one as well. Well, I would have suggested that we like this one was great, but I would have suggested if we had recorded yesterday, like we had planned to put mine ahead of yours, just because I was so excited for it. But like, God, this was good. Uh, this was amazing. Uh, I don't think I'll listen to MC Hammer for nostalgia. <laughs> no, I don't think I will either. I will. <laughs> Yeah, but I will definitely think about MC Hammer more than I would have if it was not for this story. <laughs> Fucking Charles Finley. Yeah. Well, that's our addendum to the Charles Finley story. So follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and on Instagram for daily baseball history content on Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. And until next time. Yeah, I'm Sean, and uh, sorry for all the delays and stuff. If uh, this might be a little choppy, but uh, and I'm I still had fun. <laughs> and we we're doing baseball. We're, and we were doing baseball. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs>